um, what, what happens with Android is Google makes phones now, but Google phones are only one to two percent of all of the Android devices out there. Um, and something similar is happening with, with Ethereum, where today now just one sixth of the transactions that happen on Ethereum are happening on mainnet, but the L2 space is early and proliferating rapidly. And so um, I think we can easily imagine that in the near future, only one to 2% of all EVM transactions are ultimately gonna happen on Ethereum mainnet. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Open Metaverse podcast. Thanks for having me, Betty. Joel, to kick things off, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your crypto origin story, and placeholder? I guess the story started uh, back in 2013 or so. I was working for the government of the Dominican Republic on uh, tech policy, among those things included uh, payment system reform. And I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out how to modernize the uh, payment system of uh, an emerging market and uh, started looking then more broadly at Latin America and quickly figured out that uh, we really needed a brand new uh, technology infrastructure to really do payments at scale. And, and that's how I found and fell in love with Bitcoin. Um, and then uh, a short time later, I got a uh, little tired of working for a government and uh, moved to New York and joined a venture capital firm called Union Square Ventures, who um, had just invested in Coinbase and had uh, been developing an interest in the technology. Um, that uh, th Those three years that I spent at USV were really instrumental in developing a, a deep understanding and conviction around um, what, what we, we can really do with, with uh, this innovation. Um, and then uh, fast forward to uh, 2017, um, my partner Chris uh, Berniski and I had spent at that point a year thinking about uh, how to invest in the space and um, uh, how how it was going to evolve, and, and we made the decision to start uh, Placeholder Management, which is uh, our uh, firm. Um, we're a venture capital firm that invests in uh, primarily in decentralized protocols, but uh, really with a focus on uh, decentralizing data, wealth, and power, which is the uh, our uh, our uh, driving principle. And so we've been in business since 2017. Um, we're now deploying our third fund, and, and um, uh, together and before our time at Placeholder, um, we we've really been uh, working in this industry now for almost uh, a decade now, which is which is pretty amazing. And everything that we've seen over the past 10 years um, is, is nothing short of astound astounding. Great journey, Joel. By the way, big fan of your writing as well as placeholders writing. And, Thank you. And I recently saw uh, that you have you've written a piece, I think after a few years. Um, the premise of that piece is Ethereum is like Android and, uh, and Solana is like iOS. I would love to unpack your thoughts there and and the whole whole article sure um well we can go really far back to to um add some context here because um back in i think it was 2019 um i wrote another short piece called ethereum and the seven dwarfs and uh in that one i explored 
the similarities between Ethereum in the 2019 era, now Ethereum had been around for about five years, to IBM in the mid-70s when uh, IBM had been in the mainframe computer business for for about the same time, for about five years, um, uh, a bit more. And at the time, IBM was by by all means the dominant uh, uh, mainframe provider and computer uh, company in the world. And there was a saying back then that it was uh, IBM and the Seven Dwarfs because you had IBM as the as the, the leader, and then you had uh, seven other uh, uh, computer manufacturers at the time that uh, combined didn't even sum up to uh, to to what to IBM's scale. And so, what was interesting about that time is that you had a lot of people challenging IBM, but really couldn't match its distribution. Um, and so, at the time, it 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 really was um, Ethereum who was running the table, and then you had a number of of uh, upstart networks that were trying to take market share from from Ethereum, but were just getting started. And so, um, th- there were some market structure similarities between Ethereum and those upstart networks, which included networks like uh, uh, Solana and Avalanche and Polkadot and Cosmos and a number of others, um, many many others. Uh, that at the time were called Ethereum killers. And so um, it really felt at that time, uh, and it turned out to be that Ethereum was the the, the dominant place to build on and, and the, be- the, the best place to invest at. Um, however, it, it's now been, uh, you know, about five years since. And uh, similar to uh, how we saw in the IBM era, as the infrastructure for, com- for computers matured and became more modularized and, um, uh, more standardized, then IBM started to lose dominance. Uh, now it, it continued to be and continues to be one of the world's largest companies. Um, but what standardization and modularization and the maturity of the the industry uh, enabled was you some of those uh, competitors then started gaining market share uh, years after. Um, and something similar is happening with with uh, Ethereum and and the Seven Dwarfs, where uh, we're, we're starting to see a shift, where uh, a lot of the innovation uh, is no longer happening pretty much only on Ethereum, but it's now happening on top of some of these platforms who have now been around for about five years or three years, and so they're they're more mature. Um, and so that's that's important because. Um, we have these shifts in market structure as, as, a, as an industry develops and um, almost no industry has one single dominant player that, that dominates the market. Uh, as the market matures, we typically end up with three to five major players and then a long tail of uh, kind of uh, mid-level alternatives that tend to be more specialized. And so we see this in the browser wars. We see this in the operating system wars back with uh, with uh, uh, Windows and Mac and Linux, uh, we see this with um, the cloud providers, and we see this with operate mobile operating systems and so on. Uh, the market tends to gravitate to two to five um, major players, um, and so I think we're entering that stage where we we're going from lots of different options because there's dozens of smart contract platforms, if, you know, maybe hundreds. And that all do about the same thing, uh, but now as the market's maturing, we're, we're uh, I believe we're going to consolidate to three to five major platforms. Um, 
I believe Ethereum is going to be one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, we believe that Solana is going to be one of them and, and, and a number of others. Um, but the reason why I focused on Ethereum and Solana is because, and then I'll, I'll uh, bleed into the comparison with iOS and Android, is that uh, Solana is really displaying uh, formidable strength in, in a bear market. And it's very similar to what we saw with Ethereum in, in 2018 and, and 2019. The, the reason we developed so much conviction on Ethereum then uh, was that uh, virtually every entrepreneur that uh, we were meeting in our venture capital work was building on top of Ethereum. And, and so we really got to know Ethereum uh, quite intimately. And, and you, know, you work with some really smart, uh, intelligent, careful people, and you know they make uh, intelligent choices of platforms, and then uh, you, it, it's contagious. Um, and you get to learn a lot about the infrastructure. Uh, we're going through a very similar period with Solana, where uh, we're increasingly making venture investments in that ecosystem. And that has been really feeding a lot of our enthusiasm uh, on Solana. Now, in our work with those founders, what we see is that um, the direction that Ethereum is taking um, is very different from the direction that Solana is taking. And that's actually really encouraging because the reason the market segments around two to five major players is that those two to five players make certain trade-offs that cater to different kinds of builders. Um, and so, for example, Android, as I outlined in the piece, uh, took a, an, an open source approach to the mobile operating system uh, uh, market. And instead of manufacturing the phones and vertically integrating the stack, Android runs on several different uh, kinds of phones, manufacturers, devices, televisions even. Um, and so Android is very flexible. And so Android, to, to a large extent, is primarily a developer platform and then it's being distributed to end users through um, a dozens of independent manufacturers um, and so it in the analogy here which is a crude analogy but it helps illustrate the point um, ethereum is becoming more of a platform for l2 networks to um, to settle on and, and to rely on for security and um, and, and stability and and, and so on uh, but we're we're quickly shifting to a model where most of the users of Ethereum are not using Ethereum mainnet directly, but rather are using L2 networks like Polygon or Base or Arbitrum or CK Sync and so on and so forth. And so it, it, that market structure starts to resemble that of Android. And that um, what, what happens with Android is Google makes phones now, but Google phones are only one to two percent of all of the Android devices out there. Um, and something similar is happening with, with Ethereum, where today now just one-sixth of the transactions that happen on Ethereum are happening on mainnet, but the L2 space is early and proliferating rapidly. And so um, I think we can easily imagine that in the near future, only 1% to 2% of all EVM transactions are ultimately going to happen on Ethereum mainnet, and most of them are going to happen on, on alternative platforms. That kind of model is really important. Uh, for a lot of builders. And so um, if you want to build a phone, and ironically, you know, Solana built the phone, uh, Saga, and it uses Android as an operating system. Uh, some people pointed out that that's kind of ironic, but it actually helps illustrate the point. Um, if you want to build a phone or you want to build a mobile device, um, you get to save a lot of time and money by uh, taking Android and using it as an operating system. And so today, if you want to launch your own network, 
you get to save a lot of uh, money by deploying an L2 on top of Ethereum and leveraging the EVM instead of having to build all of that infrastructure from scratch. However, that creates a number of um, uh, uh, challenges. One is that uh, the user experience from one network to the other uh, can vary a little bit. And so even though they all use the EVM, they can be slightly different. And that's the same thing we see with Android where Samsung's Android is slightly different from HTC's Android, which is slightly different from Google's Android and so on. And so that's a challenge for developers sometimes because you have to manage hundreds of different kinds of phones with different screen sizes, different processors, RAM amounts, versions of the software. Um, and so developers on Android have to spend a lot of resources uh, really targeting the lowest common denominator um, uh, set of features to target as many Android phones as possible. But you have to spend a lot to optimize. By contrast on iOS, because Apple has a more vertically integrated ecosystem, you get one SDK from Apple and one developer environment from Apple, and you don't have to spend a lot of your time trying to optimize for uh, the iOS ecosystem. You sort of only have to build once and trust that that it's going to run in lots of different places. Um, and that's one of the main advantages for developers in, in the iOS stack. And so that's why um, it's often easier to develop for iOS than it is for Android. And that's why many companies launch iOS apps before they launch uh, Android apps because um, they get to to get to market faster. And then in addition to that, the user experiences tend to be better on iOS because all of the time that you save not having to deal with the complexities of Android, you can invest into user experience. The analogy isn't direct, but it's similar to what's happening uh, in, in Solana land where uh, the user experiences that we're seeing in Solana are, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, superior to the ones that we see on Ethereum. And it's precisely because the developer doesn't have to think about uh, deploying on multiple L2s and having to manage all of those trade-offs, doesn't have to think about gas optimization and spend a lot of resources trying to make uh, the contracts cheaper to use and so on. Um, doesn't have to spend a lot of time dealing with the complexities of which wallets support which networks. And so onboarding on Ethereum is quite difficult in, in an L2 context because you have to have a compatible wallet and you have to bridge between one network and the other. And so that's, that's, that's pretty complex for the developer and for the user. And it also creates opportunities for uh, exploits and, um, and things like that. But in Solana, you, you can trust that it's just going to work on a single network and any Solana wallet is going to work with your app. And so that's allowing uh, entrepreneurs building on Solana to create much better user experience in addition to the fact that it's a much faster uh, and, and cheaper network. Yeah. Just to add on that, I, I think one thing very similar to iOS and Solana is that Solana virtual machine and, and the network itself, the L1, they're tightly integrated as well, like on a, like leveraging the parallel execution on, on the hardware side. Uh, so we'll come to Solana in a bit. But one thing I wanted to explore with you uh, was re regarding the fact that you mentioned there could be maybe two to five big winners, and then there will be perhaps a tailwind of a lot of different blockchains. So do you think those blockchains will potentially exist as the L2 on Ethereum? Or do you kind of see the market structure as such that maybe there'll be millions of blockchain, a lot of L2s, but market leadership would belong to maybe two to five? Like, how do you kind of yeah. think about that? More the latter. Um, and so um, I definitely think that uh, we'll have millions of blockchains. Now, 
I'll, I'll put a, a put, I'll put a nuance to it. And that's the, my current area of, um, research that I'm working on and, um, really what one way to conceptualize L2s, particularly with, uh, the emerging modular archetype or paradigm and with technologies like rollups in particular, um, those, those networks are interesting because they're not, they're not actual blockchains. And so a rollup isn't, isn't a blockchain. Um, it, it's built on top of a blockchain. And so it leverages the security guarantees of one underlying chain, but it itself is not a blockchain. And so I'm starting to call these, uh, virtual blockchains, um, because they, uh, as far as a smart contract is concerned, the smart contract doesn't know that it's running on a rollup or that it's not running on an actual blockchain. Um, and so the smart contract operates as if it's on a blockchain, but the environment itself is not, it's not really a blockchain. And that's interesting because it, it speaks to something that happens with, uh, technology infrastructure in almost any market is that it, it becomes more abstract and, and ultimately more virtualized, uh, over time. And so for example, in web two, um, most applications today, uh, for a number of reasons, they they run on physical servers, but they're not actually configured to run on physical servers. They're configured to run on virtual servers. And so um, uh, the container revolution that was ushered in by Docker and VMware and, and Web2 uh, in particular uh, had a lot to do with creating a virtual environment that the the application is now contained in that virtual environment. And uh, it, it, it simulates a server, uh, but it's not itself a server. And then you place that virtual environment in an actual server. And then what that allows you to do is to shift that virtual environment around without having to reconfigure the application each time. And the, the reason I think there's an interesting analogy between virtualization in Web2 and rollups or uh, virtual blockchains in, in Web3 is that um, virtualization was a, a scalability solution in Web2 and uh, rollups and these virtual blockchains are a scalability solution in, in Web3 as well. Um, but then that allows you to um, uh, really have a, a lot more flexibility in how you de deploy the infrastructure. And so what I think that's going to uh, mean is that, uh, as you pointed out, I think we'll have three to five major networks that are actual blockchain or blockchain-like networks that provide security and, and uh, censorship resistance and all of the things that we expect from blockchains at a global scale uh, that will also benefit from economies of scale. And then we're going to have a, a very long tail of, of virtual blockchains that um, will be either application-specific or general purpose or sector-specific or market specific or geography specific and so on and so forth. The reason I think there's going to be millions is that I think we're getting to a place where, or, or heading in a direction where uh, a, a virtual blockchain is the back end for any online service and it becomes sort of the API interface to that service. And so something that we're seeing in gaming, for example, with some, some platforms that are emerging is uh, games having their own rollup um, specific to that game. But then anyone who wants to build and connect to to that game's API does it via smart contract connecting to that rollup. Um, but you know it's not a game with its own blockchain; it's a game with its own rollup that simulates a blockchain. Um, and so that that kind of makes sense. And in, in, in another way that it parallels the virtualization in, in Web two is you know we have three to five major cloud providers. There's many others around the world, but three to five really major ones. 
And it, it's kind of a similar setup where if I configure, if I build a Web2 app uh, on using Docker, I now have this container and I can shift that application around from Google Cloud to AWS to Azure pretty easily. And so I think we're going to see some interesting developments as the modular stack matures, where you'll have L2s that settle to one or more uh, of those major chains, and then those major chains become like the large cloud providers. So TLDR, there'll be millions of L2s rather than blockchains and consolidating on, let's say, few L1s. So potentially things like Solana, Aptos, like all, all of these blockchains could have L2s of their own. Yes. Yeah, that's that's actually very fascinating. I know Ethereum and, and some of the blockchains are going down that path, uh, but I, I know few few L1s that want to focus on composability tend to avoid that viewpoint. So it's 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 fascinating to see that um, uh, you, you're you're viewing it from that that perspective. Um, so Joel, I wanted to um, decode Solana because. I know there are a lot of things going on in Solana, uh, but in your view, in terms of blockchain architecture and, and, and scalability, what makes Solana unique to things like Aptos, Sui, or Monad? So let's say for, for Aptos and Sui, we also have parallel execution. We also have a unique virtual machine. The only thing that, that's lacking right now is the ecosystem. But apart from that, like what, what do you think is so unique about Solana that, that, that appeals to you? As any market matures, technological differentiation between platforms matters less and less um, because they all achieve some form of feature parity. And so, for example, if you compare uh, the major cloud providers, AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, they all have, they all provide the same functionality and have virtually the same APIs. They all do it differently, but the same thing. And so, for example, AWS has S3 for storage and Azure also has a storage storage service they're architected differently, but at the end of the day, the service to the developer is the same. Builders may have different preferences or just what they were trained in is usually actually what drives uh, decision-making. And, um, and it, what, what tends to matter less is uh, the architectural differences. And then what tends to matter more is distribution, um, uh, community infrastructure, and, and developer infrastructure. And that, I think, is something that's that benefits Solana relative to to some of the others. Now, we're also invested in a number of different smart contract platforms, and we think that there's there's going to be some uh, really interesting competition among them. Um, but what we're seeing with Solana that really has us really excited is the um, uh, the the people working on the infrastructure are uh, really delivering at a at a very high rate, and then have the advantage of um, now a couple of years of uh, of building and development and having gone through a cycle. And, and so the upstarts that we're seeing uh, that are, you know, in some ways challenging Solana, uh, though the same way that the Solana uh, and or, or Solana and, and other networks of its generation were challenging Ethereum are going to have the same kind of uphill battle. Um, and so I think the, the architectural differences matter a bit less. Uh, things like business development and and, um, and and community and ecosystem are going to matter more. Now, what's interesting is, for example, you have a network like Aptos, and uh, they have been doing a great job at uh, uh, biz dev for, say, the media industry. Um, whereas, you know, Solana is targeting uh, a, a different kind of ecosystem, a different kind of network. And so I think 
one of the things that we're going to see uh, over the next five years is that we're going to be competing less on the basis of technological differences and competing more on the basis of uh, marketing and business development. So, Joel, shifting gears a bit, I also want to like touch on tokenomics and value accrual of, of two architectures, the big ones like Ethereum and Solana. So right now, if you kind of um, have a look at both the ecosystem, it feels like Ethereum is focusing more on scarcity and Solana is focus, uh, Solana is focusing on abundance in terms of the way that tokenomics is designed, in terms of the way they're kind of structuring their state. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's a correct approach? Do you think both approaches are reasonable? We'd love to download information from you. I think they both work and are reasonable. Now, the one one way I, that that's useful to frame it is, um, uh, you you have different concerns at different levels of scale, and so when you're trying to grow a, a, a network, you do have to do so on the basis of abundance. Um, and when you are trying to then consolidate and, and scale a network, uh, not not necessarily in terms of of like. Um, let's call it horizontal expansion or, or, or physical expansion, but rather once the network is established and, and sort of operating as steady state, then what happens is that you want to consolidate the status quo, so to speak. So um, it's a little bit like, I'll use an analogy, it's a little bit like when uh, a company is young, um, it, it spends a lot of its stock to, to build itself uh, in how it compensates, say, employees with, with, uh, shares of the company or how uh, companies may acquire other companies by issuing shares of itself, you know, in stock transfers, et cetera. And so it's, it's, a uh, you're, you're kind of in a capital expensive state when you don't, when you're still building the, the business and, and the machine. Uh, but once a company is really mature and generating a lot of revenues and uh, has a really strong balance sheet, then it has to spend less and less of its capital to achieve growth and it can reinvest more and more of its revenue. That's in the business world. Um, in, in the blockchain world, um, I, I think that that takes the, the form of how the issuance model of, of a network uh, is designed and structured. And so early on in the development of a network, uh, in order to incentivize people to, uh, to contribute to it and, and to invest resources in it, you do it largely through uh, that capital expenditure through issuance of the token. Um, but as the network matures more and more and you have more and more activity and you have more and more, say, internal revenues or, or income, then you can start to shift to more of an income and operational uh, uh, income model as opposed to a capital expense model. Um, and so I think what's where Ethereum is, is, is heading now is Ethereum generates a lot of fees um, and that allows it to have an, uh, a token model that does not depend on issuance of ETH itself in order to compensate the participants in the network. Um, but early on in Ethereum, you couldn't do that because there wasn't enough activity on Ethereum to compensate the participants purely on, on an income basis. Um, similar with Bitcoin, this was really, uh, uh, you know, this has been one of the, uh, uh, points of focus for Bitcoin for a long time. Bitcoin's designed so that the issuance decreases over time, and, and what should be happening is that you should see then the fees increase to to shift that. And so that shift was built into Bitcoin. Um, Ethereum has gone through a a number of changes of its economic model as as market or 
not just market conditions, but the state of the network has evolved. Um, and now I think Ethereum has a really interesting uh, model where it's it's more algorithmic, where uh, if Ethereum as a network is in a kind of recession, then it becomes inflationary because then you can expend uh, some, of, some of your capital into growth. But when Ethereum is in in a, in a boom time and you have a lot of activity and a lot of transactions, it becomes deflationary. Um, and then it, it starts to take some of that capital out of circulation. Um, I think Solana, uh, as, a, as a younger network than Ethereum, still needs to be in that state where uh, it compensates people largely through a capital expenditure. Um, but I think it's very possible that over time, as internal revenue increases, then it can shift more towards a, a business model that compensates participants from revenue rather than... So Joel, will this analogy be roughly correct? Solana, for instance, is like a growth equity sort of, and Ethereum is like a value stock. Yeah. Just to follow up on that, like in terms of your L1s, like when you kind of view it as an instrument, in terms of your mental model, do you view these tokens more of equity, commodity, money, like in terms of that, expression like where do you think these these tokens lie like especially for l1s that's a very difficult question and that's being debated at every court in the united states it seems um my personal view is that um uh they have uh characteristics of both and, and that's part of what makes them unique and um i think i wrote about this maybe in 2018, um, when I was thinking about something called the crypto economic circle, which was looking at how, um, a different, uh, how the token really ties to different parts of the network. And, and what's interesting is that the, the token is different things to different people in the network, depending on where you stand. And, and that's really the, the financial innovation here, um, has a lot to do with that. And so if you are a user, uh, the token can be both a currency um, as it can be capital. Now, I'll, I'll pause there and put an asterisk on this. It really depends on the token model of the network. And so, for example, um, in uh, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin itself is not a capital asset within the Bitcoin network um, because Bitcoin is proof of work. The capital asset in the Bitcoin network is actually the, the mining hardware. Uh, that is the capital asset of the Bitcoin network, and it produces this this output uh, that is a currency within the network. Um, and so, the value of Bitcoin comes more from the scarcity and, and supply and demand forces than from capital dynamics. In a proof of stake network, where um, the the token allows you to participate in the production side of the network, then the token uh, becomes a capital asset. Uh, because that's how you then produce the resources of the network. And capital is really, uh, this will be a gross oversimplification, but the, the helpful way to think about capital is it's very related to the production side of the market. Um, and so thinking about proof-of-stake networks um, or, or similar or proof-of-stake type token models or token models that are not necessarily proof-of-stake, but where the, the holders of the token um, are able to access some of the economic value created by the protocol or the network, uh, those are more capital assets. Now, for example, I can um, I can have uh, sold tokens and not stake and not validate and not participate in that creation. And so to me, in that case, sold is, is, is 
only a, a currency asset or a commodity asset and not a capital asset. Um, but then to the validators who do stake, then it, it can become a capital asset. It's also a little bit like, um, you know, one of the interesting things is this isn't actually new because if you think of the US dollar, it can be, you can use it as a capital asset or you can use it as a, uh, or you can transform it into capital uh, or you can use it purely as, as a currency asset. Um, and so it's, it's kind of similar in that sense. Um, what's hard is, is having kind of a blanket statement because token models vary so widely across different, different kinds of networks. Um, but this is probably the reason why it's been so tough to make the decision of whether a certain uh, a token is, is a, a security or, uh, or a commodity or whether it's capital or currency and so on. Do you think because of liquid staking and restaking, these types of concepts that are emerging, even the mental models now will have to shift? Like Ethereum could now become more of a capital asset than let's say money. Like, do you think, like, what, what do you think about that? Like because of these dynamics yeah. emerging? Yeah. Well, I definitely think that um, Ethereum, first of all, became more of a capital asset in the transition to proof of stake. And then that is probably um, uh, exacerbated by the shift to an L2 dominant model, uh, where uh, ETH becomes more and more of a capital asset. And then when you have liquid staking derivatives and, and then um, financial instruments built around the nature of that capital asset, it further reinforces uh, its status as as a as a capital instrument, um, and then it's kind of interesting because um, you know if, if we fast forward, let's just imagine a world uh, years into the future where you have uh, billions of Ethereum users that do not hold ETH um, because instead they are using applications through various L2s. Many of them are probably gasless networks. Many of them are using other tokens for for uh, expenses, or you know, we get to a place where your wallet is also tied to your debit card, and then it just pays for transaction fees as you go, and all the things that are that are coming up. And so, uh, ETH becomes increasingly invisible to the end user, and instead, ETH is primarily used by the machines who then leverage ETH for security. And so, you know, for example, the Coinbase's base business model is. Um, the users on on base, um, you know, conducting their activity, and then base as a network essentially pays Ethereum. It's something like fifty percent margins, and so uh, to some degree, it ETH becomes kind of a currency for for the L twos to purchase or rent security and storage from from mainnet. But it becomes less and less of a currency, um, and less and less the instrument that you use to exchange for other goods and services. Um, and so I, I think that progression, that transition, uh, uh, further cements uh, ETH as, as a capital asset. Joel, you talked about machine. So we'll just use that moment to kind of like completely share, uh, change gears. I, I heard you on Unchained podcast uh, where you eloquently articulated your, your thesis around intersection of Web3 and AI. So I think I want you to like explain that to our audience. Like how are you kind of thinking about Native Web3 AI business models, how are, you, how are you kind of thinking about the emergence and convergence of Web3 and AI? Yeah. Let's start with a thought experiment, or actually establishing principles. It's 
it's clear that there's going to be more AI agents than humans. Let's start with that. Vastly more. Because um, it's much cheaper to create an AI agent than it is to create a human. Um, and so, you know, how many more, I don't know, but orders of magnitude or, you know, millions of orders of magnitude because we'll be able to instantiate these agents and shut them down uh, at zero cost. And it's clear that these agents um, consume large amounts of information um, and they get that information from the internet in some way, um, either because someone has consolidated it and given it to them or because they're increasingly browsing the web and accessing information uh, on, on the internet. And so I think that inevitably creates a scenario where um, we're going to see, say, I'm going to throw some really large numbers that may seem shocking, but I think are actually probably conservative. Let's say that we see a million fold increase in internet traffic demands. And so right now the internet is almost at 90% penetration globally. Human growth rate is pretty kind of stable around the world. And so demand from humans isn't going to skyrocket exponentially um, uh, overnight, but uh, internet traffic demands from AI agents, I think, is something that um, is going to take a larger and larger share uh, of internet traffic until the point that most of uh, the internet traffic is being consumed by AI agents as opposed to actual humans. Uh, and so uh, I know that these days I go to ChatGPT before I go to Google for many things. And then I see ChatGPT go and browse the internet and find out some stuff and then come and give me an answer. Um, and so what's interesting about that is um, a web two infrastructure is not at least immediately prepared for that kind of, of uh, increase in demand. Um, and B, the web to business model isn't built for a world where 99% of internet traffic is driven by machines as opposed to driven by humans. And so that doesn't mean that we browse the internet less. It means that the machines browse the internet so much more than, than we do. And so if you think about all of those th things combined, then you start to see how the Web2 business models uh, and the cost models then uh, start to break and start to crack. And so when OpenAI released browsing a couple of months ago, they had to shut it down after a, a couple of weeks because um, Web2 companies couldn't really cope with uh, what that meant. And we're at the very early stages of this. Twitter had to really kind of clamp down and, and limit uh, public access to the network. And it, it's because then for Web2 providers, the cost of servicing all of that traffic demand then increases rapidly, but AI agents don't click on ads and you can't profile them. And so you can't, and they don't subscribe to, to, um, uh, to content creators or anything like that. And so uh, you, you then get this uh, rapid increase in cost, but then you don't get the revenue that, that is associated with it. So that creates a set of interesting opportunities because it means that the, the companies that remain in that business model are going to shut themselves off to AI and then uh, they might try to promote their own and build their own and have exclusive access and, and that's something that we're going to see. Um, or they're going to make it really expensive for, for people to access. And so, for example, some things that are unrelated to this but that are part of the trend is uh, uh, Twitter's 
uh, API pricing changes that shut down a lot of applications from being able to access it because it's too expensive. Reddit did the same, where it, it shut down a lot of its developer ecosystem, um, not by shutting down the API, but by increasing the pricing to where they don't lose money on it. Um, and so what that's going to mean is that, um, well, one thing is that AI agents are going to have to consume information from people that are willing to give it to them. Um, but it also means that uh, we're going to need an entirely new business model for uh, for uh, online services to, to deal with AI. And the reason I think crypto is, is a big part of the solution to that is on the infrastructure side, uh, I think decentralized infrastructure where you distribute the cost of the infrastructure is better suited to handle uh, a rapid increase in in demand from AI agents than um, than Web two infrastructure is, and that's a very high level comment to make. Um, but a lot of it has to do with who bears the cost of it. And so, in a decentralized network, the the cost of the infrastructure is distributed among uh, a, a lot of uh, independent people, as opposed to being concentrated in one company. Um, and then the other thing that's most interesting is well, um, how could you implement the model where Okay, I'm going to allow an agent to come in and consume information from me, but I'm, I have I have to charge that agent some amount of money. And so an agent can't sign up to the Twitter API and swipe a credit card to get some uh, uh, API tokens to get some data. That That's not going to scale, but you can have a smart contract in the middle where the AI agent goes to consume some information and makes a micropayment to receive that information and then you know uses it as an input for whatever the AI agent is trying to do. And so I think that's a lot more sustainable and, and correct where, um, you know, we tried microtransactions in Web2 many years ago and it didn't work because humans don't like making microtransactions. But microtransactions make a ton of sense in an AI agent driven world. And so where I think we ultimately end up is we're going to have these billions and billions and billions of AI agents browsing the web and talking to each other uh, and paying each other for information as they go around trying to figure out how to do their tasks. Uh, and then they bring that information back to us. And it only seems natural to me that that uh, economy runs on blockchain networks as opposed to the traditional financial system. I just can't imagine that working, you know, on top of Visa or MasterCard. It's just never going to work. So, Joel, how, like, as an investor, like, how are you thinking about expressing that? Like, when you kind of told me this story, I kind of feel like account abstraction, intent-based architecture, like those were the few things that are just like, popping in my head or or making infra for let's say equipping these agents with crypto wallets or trying to do all of that stuff so how how do you think one sh- one can express this like how are you thinking about yeah. it yeah so uh you touched on one area that i'm very interested in which is uh wallets for machines um and there's two two interaction models that i think make sense there's probably more but i, I can think of two basic ones one is where, and, and what this, this would be relevant to account abstraction, one is where you authorize an agent to spend on your behalf. Um, and so that's one where, um, you know, you have a wallet with your keys, but then using account abstraction type of technologies, then, um, you know, you instruct your agent or one agent to do a task. It, it computes an estimate of how much it's going to cost to do that. Uh, and then it spends it from your wallet. And what's interesting here is that one of the reasons why we also need the decentralized infrastructure in the back end is that um, uh, right now, OpenAI is vastly subsidizing the cost of ChatGPT for people, and all of these companies are subsidizing it. 
Um, but we're going to have to move to an operational cost model where um, uh, the the agent is going to have to be able to pay for its own resources. Um, and so that's something where um, uh, infrastructure networks, like for example, Filecoin is going to be extremely interesting. Are we even uh, besides all the the smart contract networks and all of the uh, compute and training networks that exist uh, on a on a blockchain network, a big part of the reason why the blockchain is really important is in those is so that you can uh, uh, pay just in time for the resources that you need. And that's something that's going to be really hard to do uh, under the the traditional Web two model. So in, in that scenario, you know that agent that's doing stuff on your behalf let's say that it computes, okay, you know, you ask it to execute some tasks, like book you a flight uh, to pick something kind of banal. And then it says, okay, I'm going to need these many resources to pay for the cost of my compute to go do that. And then I'm going to need this much to be able to communicate with these other agents that do the flight booking, that do the, you know, checking of schedules and so on, because they're going to have their own resource expenses. They might tell you, okay, you know, it's going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to go do this for you. It's going to be about five bucks. And then, you know, you authorize it from your wallet and then it goes. Um, and so in that case, that's the account abstraction and, and stuff like that. The, o- the other interaction model is one where you have agents that are not necessarily tied to, to you individually, but are more independent um, and that have their own independent wallets and their own internal balance. And I think of those as more commercial agents where um, maybe you have one generalized flight booking agent to use the same analogy, and it's perfectly trained to, to do flight bookings. Uh, and instead of spending on your behalf, it charges you money, and it has its own internal uh, uh, balance sheet that, that it creates. Um, and so there, it's not uh, spending your money so much as you're paying it. And those agents might be owned by companies. They might be owned by DAOs, for example. That's something that I think is really interesting, where a DAO can own uh, a type of agent. Um, and then more broadly, we might have some independent agents that nobody controls that run some decentralized uh, infrastructure. And maybe some of the most uh, capable of them will become you know, AI millionaires or billionaires and, and things like that if, if they turn out to be really important. Um, and so that's that's one mode of interaction that I think makes sense. And then an, another way to express this into kind of concrete investment ideas is uh, how are we going to interact with these agents? What is the user interface going to be? And I think wallets are, are going to play a huge role here. Um, and so in, in both of those scenarios, it makes sense, at least to me, for that interaction to happen at the wallet layer. Um, and so uh, we're starting to see, for example, uh, Coinbase Wallet having added XMTP messaging and wallet-to-wallet messaging is something that's really interesting because it, it's sort of underexplored in that people are still thinking about it as a way to replace WhatsApp or, or Telegram or, or iMessage. And I don't think that's the right way to think about the potential for these decentralized messaging protocols, but rather as the native communication mechanism for all of these agents. And so at the end of the day, if you're going to have agents running on decentralized infrastructure, you're going to need a decentralized way to communicate with them. Uh, and they're going to need a decentralized way to communicate with each other. And so um, all of the people who are working on wallet-to-wallet messaging, uh, if you think of an agent having a wallet address as an identifier and you know that this wallet address corresponds to this particular agent, uh, and then you see that agent's actions on chain, now you have an audit trail of what this agent is doing online, uh, what information it's consuming, and that's really important for security and privacy and auditability of AI. 
and then they might use these decentralized messaging protocols to speak with each other and to speak with you. Um, and so that that's another a area where uh, we're spending a lot of time uh, uh, researching and understanding and, and developing a thesis. Um, and then ultimately the wallet layer, um, more and more wallets are implementing messaging and, and building chat interfaces into their apps. Um, and so all of that is going to come together to to power this new world. Yep. All of this is very fascinating. Very, very fascinating. Uh, so, so Joe, recently, like we have seen a few very exciting Web3 experiments on deep inside and SocialFi. Like we are seeing things like Web3 Glassdoor, uh, Web3 OnlyFans, Fend.tech. And on deep inside, we are trying to see, like, see decentralized Google Maps, decentralized Google. Like, what are your thoughts on these? Are, are there any projects that you guys are looking into? Like, and then what's the placeholder's thesis and your view on these emerging networks that are being built? Yeah. So, um, people have been trying this for a long time. And so, um, back before it was clear the ways in which we could use crypto. And I'm, I'm talking about 2015, 2014, um, uh, 2016. We had the first attempts at decentralized Uber. We had the first attempts at decentralized Google Map. We invested in one of them uh, uh, that's called Phone Space that's still operating. Um, uh, we had um, uh, networks like Steam, which a lot of people will probably not recognize, but uh, it was the first... Uh, or one of the first decentralized social networks that was kind of a, a Reddit and it had its own blockchain and you know, did all these things. Um, and, you know, they didn't, they didn't really make it all the way through here. Uh, and a large part of the reason has to do with just where we are in the market cycle. Uh, Steam had to build an entire blockchain for its service. And so it was very capital expensive uh, for the stage of the market. Then the market was tiny. And so... Um, that's that's called that's a common pattern in any new industry. So that was essentially the '90s for 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 the internet. In the '90s, uh, you had that same dynamic where a lot of, a lot of the ideas that are in in Web two today, the largest companies, were ideas that people tried to do in the '90s. Um, but you had a combination of really expensive infrastructure costs because you had to build the infrastructure in the first place and too small a market. And so people did video streaming in the 90s, but not enough people had broadband, not enough people had computers, the servers were, were extremely expensive, and so you couldn't really scale it and do YouTube. You couldn't start really YouTube until 2005, and it wasn't until the 2010s that it really became uh, uh, more and more dominant. And so um, I think a big part of, of, of what we're going through is a generational transition, as now uh, the infrastructure is rapidly becoming cheaper and cheaper the market is expanding and these ideas become more and more uh, viable uh, uh, as a result of that. And uh, we should also include in, in, in that the um, uh, expanding regulatory space as, as the rules become clearer and clearer. And so payments are easier and wallets are easier and so on. And so um, it's the kind of thing where uh, anything that touches the physical world, it's a lot harder to scale than things that, that don't. Now, Deepin is kind of interesting because crypto has always been about Deepin um, in that, you know, Bitcoin is a decentralized physical infrastructure network because you have all of these data centers around the world uh, processing transactions. And, and so that's not exactly new. 
Um, but obviously, where we're taking this infrastructure in terms of the other functions that it can do is is, is new. Um, and so I would expect uh, Deepin to start uh, uh, taking off more seriously now, actually, as a consequence of what we're what we just talked about with with AI demands. And so um, things that have been existing for quite some time, like Falcon and Arweave, I think are going to be increasingly relevant. Um, people who have been doing um, uh, GPU networks uh, now have a market that uh, is increasingly demanding GPU uh, uh, capacity, whereas you know five years ago there wasn't as much demand for decentralized GPU or compute. Um, and then as far as social, um, it, it, it's it's similar to that kind of transition in that you know Steemit had to build an entire blockchain. Now you can build a social network on an L2. Um, and it's much cheaper to do. And so um, I think that's what's allowing the new generation of social uh, or, or social fi networks to uh, focus more on user experience and product as opposed to focusing on the infrastructure. Uh, and so we're starting to see that new generation of applications that have uh, you know better user experiences or more innovative user experiences because they don't have to build all that infrastructure themselves. Yeah, I think those experiments are very very fascinating. What I'm also seeing, at least on Socialify, people are also experimenting with some of the concepts they have learned from NFTs and DeFi. Like Friend.Tech has a bonding curve, and it's 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 good to see all of these experiments and people borrowing concepts from different facets of crypto and and, and trying to do something new. Uh, so Joel, do you, do you also think because of the re-emergence of some of these theme, theme, RWA is also going through a revival because of the infrastructure being a bit more developed and we, us having a bigger user base and liquidity? Yes. Um, but perhaps more important than that is the regulatory aspect. And so um, that I think is the most relevant uh, evolution for uh, real-world assets and tokenization in general. And um, the the first hints of this is that um, the first, the, the low-hanging fruit for regulation around the world that everyone's pursuing and everyone agrees on is stable coins, regulated stable coins. And that's really important. And so, for example, uh, the first layer of European crypto rules has to do with uh, uh, centralized and collateralized stable coins. Uh, and we're seeing the same thing in, uh, even in the United States. Uh, I think it's uh, most likely that the first crypto-specific bill of law and regulation to be passed in the U.S. has to do with stable coins um, and, and same elsewhere around the world. And that's, that's the narrow point of the wedge. That's the Trojan horse into RWAs because a, a centralized stable coin is a real-world asset, a tokenized real-world asset. You have the uh, whatever collateral is underneath it, government bonds or actual currency, uh, is the thing that you're 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 tokenizing. Um, and the traditional financial industry's interest in blockchains has everything to do with tokenization and real world assets. Um, and so I think the um, the institutional uh, revolution on chain is going to be largely focused on RWAs. Now. People have been talking about the institutions are coming for for years, um, but the thing is, the institutions are always going to play with the technology, but they're not going to come until the regulations are clear. Um, but we're now getting to the place where the regulations are. Uh, we have a lot of visibility into the regulations being clear, and so, for example, what what we're going to see in the next two years as stablecoin regulations uh, settle in 
is the banks are going to release their own stable coins um, backed by their deposits. And they're already starting to do that around the world. Uh, and that's the first thing that banks are going to be allowed to do. And then the banks are going to be allowed to tokenize uh, uh, other assets in their portfolios. For example, JP Morgan, um, who has a very storied history with crypto, uh, has been experimenting with blockchain stuff for a long time. They announced a JPM coin a couple of years ago, and people sort of just dismissed it. Um, but but they've kept building. And so now you look at JP Morgan's Onyx platform, and it's essentially an Ethereum uh, network. It's not obviously Ethereum mainnet. Uh, it's an Ethereum. It's a private Ethereum network. But they're using a lot of public Ethereum infrastructure. For example, they're using ENS, uh, a fork of ENS essentially, in the Onyx platform so that they can identify their counterparties um, uh, uh, through ENS domains as opposed to wallet addresses. Um, And they're starting to tokenize uh, uh, assets and collateral and bonds with other banks for interbank transactions. And that that is... uh, real world assets. Now they're starting in a kind of private consortium type of model, but then as as more and more institutions join, uh, then ultimately um, uh, consumer transactions will operate on these chains. And it's interesting to to think about. You know, going back to the L two um, uh, conversation that we had, I think a lot of these uh, uh, networks will ultimately become L twos of Ethereum, and that's how you'll be able to jump from. Um, JP Morgan's Onyx to HSBC's, um, you know, whatever network they might have, and so on. So that's that's I think really interesting in how we're going to get our the bulk of our RWAs uh, out there, and then obviously people want to uh, uh, be able to pursue opportunities in more in the startup and innovation side of things, not necessarily the, trans- the traditional financial side. Um, but that's where we're going to see some of the competitive dynamics among. Uh, among the established financial industry and, and the startups. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, one observation I would like to share is, I, I mean, so, like some of the crypto models, because of securities regulation, uh, it's very difficult to get token value accrual. And I've, we have seen like some experiment where we, we have project, like for example, Sorel, they cannot launch a token because if they accrue revenue to the token or cash flow to the token, it will be a security. So what they're doing is in terms of the native business model, they want to get the value accrual right now in cash flows. And in terms of Web3, the native medium of exchange is stables. So I think that is also because of regulation that has just amped up the need for uh, for the usage of um, stable coins. Well, I'll tell you something else on that and, and sorry to interrupt. Another, th- another consequence of... Um, this architecture where you have a relatively small number of core chains and then a proliferation of L2s, um, I think one of the consequences is that shift of uh, moving away from uh, native token business models to more cash flow uh, driven business models. And so um, I think the the first big, I mean, not the first, but the, the most prominent right now uh I think Coinbase's base is going to showcase a lot of this dynamic where uh, it doesn't have a token. I don't know, but I don't suspect that Coinbase is planning to add a token to it. But it generates a a lot of revenue for Coinbase and it generates a lot of revenue for for Ethereum. And so um, as the infrastructure becomes cheaper and cheaper, uh, you actually need the token models less and less 
because going back to the conversation we had about when you're expanding and you need to expand a lot of capital to scale a network, that's why we were using tokens to incentivize people to come in and provide resources when starting up a network and a protocol was very expensive. But as that becomes cheaper and cheaper, you need to do less and less of that. Um, and also as more users have stable coins or other tokens and, 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 and you can uh, uh, implement those business models as the market is larger, then you need that less and less. So uh, it, we're seeing that playing out in, in real time. And so the reason I mentioned that is that yes, regulations might have uh, a thing to say there, but I think the more powerful market uh, forces actually have more to do with mark with the market structure dynamics than than regulation and that it's it's just increasingly less necessary to have to issue a new token to incentivize people yeah th th that makes a lot of sense so Joel do you think in terms of that modular architecture our data availability execution settlement like instead of having a token we can have value accrual in, in cash flow basis yes got it um so Joel, on the last segment of the podcast, and I assure you it's a fun one, it's a, it's a rapid fire round. Uh, so my first question is, Joel, what does crypto need to focus on right now? Wallets. Got it. Uh, your pet peeve in Web3. My pet peeve in Web3. Um, confusing uh, value capture with investment returns. Oh, this is a good one. Uh, Last thing you put on in ChatGPT. The last thing I put on in ChatGPT. Let me see. Um, I <laughs> I asked, what are examples of Kenyan food? Uh, so, file question, Joel. What are some of the weird Web3 experiments you are excited about? Oof. Um, politicians. Politicians with tokens. <laughs> Very nice. I think we need to onboard them to friend.tech. <laughs> Actually, that's 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 pretty interesting. Or politician.tech. That could yep. work. Yep. I get you not I've recently seen Web3 Glassdoor as well. Um, maybe I'll 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 share the link with the audience as well. Like there's very interesting and weird experiments happening in Web3 when it comes to social fire. So I'm I'm looking forward to all the experimentation. Cool, Joel. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I got to learn so much. So again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate the space. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.